Welcome to Dig Deep. We are in week three of our series, Cleaning House. And if you were here last week, we talked about Colossians chapter three, where the Apostle Paul is writing to the church and saying, listen, you guys have some nasty stuff in the closets of your hearts and your minds and your lives. And God is calling you to haul that junk out of here and replace it with the good things that he has in store for you. And so week one of this series, we talked about envy and how God is calling us to replace it with gratitude. And last week, we talked about anger and how God wants us to replace it with tender-hearted mercy. Today, we're talking about greed. And greed is a tricky one. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, Paul includes greed in the list of the many things that he says the church needs to get rid of. He says, don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater worshiping the things of this world. And see, the problem with greed is it's almost impossible to see greed in the mirror. You know, I have never been in a, in a small group situation with a group of people or one-on-one and in a confession type situation, I've never heard someone say, you know what my problem is? I'm just so greedy. Usually it's, it's relatively easy for us to identify, maybe I've got an envy problem. Maybe that's what's, what's just tying me up in knots. And, or it's easy to see if we have an anger problem. Other people can see that in us, but greed is just a little bit trickier. It's more difficult to see in the mirror. And we're using this metaphor throughout this series of cleaning out closets. And I have a trick that I'd like to share with you if you're open to it, if you're looking for a way to minimize the junk in your closet. You know, of course, most of us will make a pile of things, of things to keep and things to get rid of, either donate or throw away. But usually there's a lot of stuff that just falls somewhere in the middle. Well, what I do with those things, the things that are in the maybe pile, if you will, maybe you you haven't used it in a while, but you think you might again someday. You're not really sure. You're leaning toward getting rid of it, but you ultimately just can't seem to bring yourself to put it in the goodwill pile. Well, I try to keep a box or a bag in the corner of the closet that's on a rotating basis. I put things that are in the maybe pile in that box. And I do this for my husband and my children too. So if I know that he hasn't worn that shirt in a year, I will put it in there even without asking his permission. And with my children who always have a thousand stuffed animals, I don't even know where they get these stuffed animals. I will from time to time be like, you know what? They really just have not even played with this maybe ever, but certainly in the, in the last year. And so I'll put it in that box. And what I do is I just wait. I let the box sit for three to six months. It's kind of there all the time, but every three or six months, I will take the contents of that box to the Salvation Army and donate it. And the benefit of keeping it for three to six months is that if my husband or my children realize that they are missing that thing and they really do want to play with it or wear it, they will come to me and say, mom, because of course, as the mom, I'm the person who knows where all things are at all time for some reason in our house. And they'll say, oh, my husband will say, oh, you know, have you seen that black button down shirt with the stripes? I haven't seen it in a while. And I'll say, oh, you know what? I did see it somewhere. Give me just a second. And then I'll run up to the closet, dig it out of that box, remembering that I put it there two months earlier. And I will provide it and say, look, oh, I found it. Yay. And it'll go back into circulation. Turns out he did miss it. He will use it. It goes back into circulation. The same thing will happen with my kids if they notice that the toy is missing and they actually want to play with it. 
Now, as you can imagine, most of the time, the items in this box do not get requested. They are not sought out because they are not missed. They're not used. And so I take them to the Salvation Army every few months. Well, the best thing about this method is that I can use it to trick myself too. The same items that I think are maybes for me, things that are on the fence for me, I can hide in that box. And the trick for me is to not look in there before I donate it, to dump it all into a bag, not look at the contents and take it to Goodwill. Because if I can do that without seeing the contents, then I can get rid of it. But so often, if I just get the tiniest glimpse of, oh yeah, wait, why did I put that shirt in there? I might wear that again someday. Or, oh yeah, I mean, he still might wear that again down the road. I'll tend to hang on to it. And so it's a method that I use to lie to, I mean, trick my husband and my children and even myself, and it might be useful to you. And that's the way I think it is with greed a little bit. I think greed is something that we have to trick ourselves out of a little bit. Because see, most of us, myself included, would say, I'm not greedy. I'm, I'm really not a greedy person. And many of us would even say, I'm too poor to be greedy. I mean, of course, none of us who are Americans and drive a car or, and eat three square meals a day can call ourselves poor. But we have this fundamentally broken idea that you have to be rich to be greedy. And so we think about greed as the greed that we see in corrupt financial systems or in twisted governments or with people who are maybe celebrities who we know are incredibly, you know, materialistic or selfish. And, and we think of those pictures when we think of greed. But greed is really just a seed that is planted in our hearts that just has the still small voice that says, just a little bit more, just a little bit more. And you'll be satisfied just a little bit more and you'll be happy just a little bit more and you'll have enough. So greed, as we talk about greed today, I want to point out that the foundational understanding we need to have is that greed is not about the amount you have. Greed is about the amount that you have never being enough. In her book, The Soul of Money, author Lynn Twist describes a scarcity mindset. Listen to this and see if you resonate with her words the way I do. She says, for me, as for many of us, our first waking thought of the day is, I didn't get enough sleep. The next one is, I don't have enough time. Whether true or not, that thought of not enough occurs to us automatically before we even think to question or examine it. We spend most of the hours and the days of our lives hearing, explaining, complaining, or worrying about what we don't have enough of. We don't have enough exercise. We don't have enough work. We don't have enough profits. We don't have enough power. We don't have enough wilderness. We don't have enough weekends. And of course, we don't have enough money ever. We're not thin enough. We're not smart enough. We're not pretty enough or fit enough or educated enough or successful enough or rich enough ever. Before we even sit up in bed, before our feet touch the floor, we're already inadequate, already behind, already losing, already lacking something. And by the time we go to bed at night, our minds race with a litany of what we didn't get or didn't get done that day. We go to sleep burdened by those thoughts and wake up to the reverie of lack. What begins as a simple expression of the hurried life or even the challenged life grows into the great justification for an unfulfilled life. 
And it's the scarcity mindset that she's describing that we don't have quite enough and that if we just had a little bit more, we'd be satisfied or happy or content. And that scarcity mindset is the breeding ground for greed. I've mentioned Marie Kondo in this series and her book, The Magic Art of Tidying Up. And she says, when it comes to cleaning out closets, she says, when we delve into the reasons for why we can't let something go, there are only two, an attachment to the past or a fear for the future. She says, one of the reasons we can't let things go is for fear of the future. Greed is fueled by fear. The scarcity mindset that says you never have enough is fueled by fear. And remember, greed is not about the amount you have. It's about the amount you have never being enough. And God's desire for us to live fully reliant on him is because he loves us and wants us to be fully content and fully satisfied. When we look throughout human history, we see this trend that human beings always believe that we will be satisfied if we get just a little bit more. And in the Old Testament of the Bible, we read the historical account of the Israelites being freed from slavery in Egypt. And we know that God performed many miracles and signs and sent many plagues. And eventually, Pharaoh, with a broken heart, released the Israelites who started their journey toward the land God promised to give them. And we read in Exodus 13, verses 17 through 18, When Pharaoh finally let the people go, God did not lead them along the main road that runs through Philistine territory, even though that was the shortest route to the promised land. God said, If the people are faced with a battle, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led them in a roundabout way through the wilderness toward the Red Sea. See, the journey that the Israelites took from Egypt to the Promised Land is a journey that really should have only taken about 11 days if the shortest route had been taken. Instead, God led them through the wilderness on a road that took them 40 years to get there. Why? And as we read the stories of the things that took place during those 40 years, we see that God didn't just want to set the Israelites free from the slavery that they had endured as a people for hundreds of years. He had work that he wanted to do in their hearts and at the foundation of their culture. And in Exodus chapter 16, we read about one of these incredible lessons that deeply shifted the culture and the hearts of the Israelites. In Exodus chapter 16, we read that the Israelites had been away from Egypt for about six weeks and they were beginning to run out of their food and they were hungry. So they started to complain and they grumbled to Moses and said, we had so much food back in Egypt. Maybe we should have stayed. Maybe we should go back. We're hungry. And in verse 11 and 12 of Exodus 16, the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them at twilight, you will eat meat. And in the morning, you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening, vast numbers of quail flew in and covered the camp. And the next morning, the area around the camp was wet with dew. When the dew evaporated, a flaky substance as fine as frost blanketed the ground. The Israelites were puzzled when they saw it. What is it? They asked each other. They had no idea what it was. And Moses told them, it is the food the Lord has given you to eat. These are the Lord's instructions. Each household should gather as much as it needs 
pick up two quarts for each person in your tent. So the people of Israel did as they were told. Some gathered a lot, some only a little. But when they measured it out, everyone had just enough. Those who gathered a lot had nothing left over, and those who gathered only a little had enough. Each family had just what it needed. And we see in this passage these clues. I mean, did you, you probably heard it at the end there, that even though they were all gathering slightly different amounts, miraculously, they all had enough, just enough, enough to be satisfied, enough to feed their children, enough to go to bed with a full belly, just enough. And greed wants to tell you that you never have quite enough, that just a little bit more will be enough. But God is saying, I will provide, and what I provide is enough. Then Moses reminded the people of what God had commanded, do not keep any of it until morning. But some of them didn't listen and kept some of it until morning. But by then it was full of maggots and had a terrible smell. And Moses was very angry with them. And I believe he was angry with them because they were operating out of a scarcity mindset. What they kept got moldy. And when we hang on to gifts from God, the stuff of this world, it will get moldy and full of maggots and have a terrible smell. And what strikes me most about the end of that passage I just read was that we just heard that they all gathered different amounts, but that miraculously it came out to be exactly enough for what their family needed that day. So when we read that some of them, because of their scarcity mindset, not knowing whether there would be more on the ground the next day, not knowing whether they could trust God, held on to it, it meant that they skimped on the meals the day before. If they all had just enough, the exact right amount to have full bellies and to feed all their children, then they must have decided we are going to skimp today so that we can save some for tomorrow. So you can imagine their disappointment when they went to bed, maybe just a tiny bit hungry, only to find that the food that they had saved was full of maggots the next day. And see, this is, I think, one of the one of the worst tricks that greed plays on us. Greed doesn't just set us on a treadmill of always looking for more in the future. Greed robs us of our ability to truly savor every bite of the gifts right in front of us today. Greed has us looking so far into the future that we can't enjoy the good gifts that God has given us, that he meant for us to enjoy today. Looking again at Colossians 3 verse 5, Paul says, Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. And you and I would probably say, I don't worship the things of this world. I mean, this is some harsh language, Paul. But if we are looking to the things of this world to satisfy us, then we are idolizing them. We are shifting our lives and our behaviors, our patterns of thinking around those things. We are doing whatever it takes to get more of them. We are placing them at the center of our lives and therefore worshiping them, idolizing them. And the sad truth that we all know, we all have experienced, and that the Israelites just experienced, is that the things of this world always let us down. Even good gifts from God, like 
bizarre miracle bread from heaven will turn moldy someday. I've shared with you before about the time that my husband and I went to New Orleans to help after Katrina with some cleanup and restoration. And I've shared with you the infamous cockroach story, which if you haven't heard it, you can go back and listen to the Restoration Marriage series. That was probably the most scarring moment of the trip was the cockroaches. But the first house that we gutted while we were there was a very different situation. It was less scary of a house, but it was still very anxiety producing for me. Because remember, as I've said in this series, I love tidy, clean closets. And this home was owned by a a wonderful elderly gentleman who we, we didn't get a chance to meet, but I'm sure he was perfectly lovely. And he had held on to a lot of stuff. And of course, after the devastation of the hurricane, most of that stuff was completely ruined. And our job was to go in and collect it all and move it to the curb. And then eventually, of course, strip the house all the way down to its studs so that it could be renovated. Well, during this process, my anxiety just grew and grew because the room that I was assigned to work in was one that I guess this gentleman had stored for whatever reason, boxes of of paraphernalia that he'd collected over the years. And that included several boxes of old newspapers. Now, boxes of newspapers, I don't understand why anyone would keep those, but I do know that when they are completely waterlogged and moldy, they kind of just crumble in your hands and are really very heavy. And the best thing you can do is put them into a trash bag and drag curb. Well, after a few hours of doing this, because there were so many boxes of moldy newspapers, I was kind of getting frustrated. And I'm sure this man was a, a lovely man, but I was frustrated with him, thinking, why on earth would you keep all of these newspapers? I mean, what good is it to have all of these newspapers that now I am spending my afternoon hauling to the curb in pieces? And it didn't help that in the middle of this process, I pulled one box over only to see a squirrel staring up at me, frozen with its dead eyes, looking up. I screamed out loud, only to realize that this was a taxidermied squirrel that he had saved. I don't know if he had shot it or someone else. Now, of course, I took it into all the different rooms of the house and had a little fun with it, throwing it at different team members and pretending it was attacking me and all kinds of fun fun jokes before I put it into a trash bag. But again, I was annoyed. I thought, why... Why do you have a taxidermied squirrel in your house? I mean, it's not even something cool. It's not like a, a deer head or something. I mean, we're talking about a gray North American squirrel. Anyway, point is, I was starting to get annoyed with this gentleman thinking, why was he keeping all this stuff? And as I was out on the curb unloading one of these bags, another man on our team was bringing out some small pieces of furniture and he had a little end table, a little wooden end table that was ruined by the elements. And as he was putting it onto the curb, he saw a little plaque on the bottom and he told those of us who were standing by, oh, look how sad and sweet this is. This was a gift to this man and his wife on their wedding day over 50 years ago, this ornate little end table. And it was in that moment that my frustration with this man at all of this stuff that he had saved very quickly shifted because my husband and I had just gotten married about three or four months before this trip. 
And looking at the pile of stuff on the curb, the pile transformed before my eyes into a pile of all of the beautiful, new, shiny wedding presents we had been given three or four months before. And I had to ask myself the question, am I really so different? See, it's easy to clean out someone else's closet. You think, why do you have all this crap in here? It's easy to clean out someone else's closet. It's easy to read about the Israelites and think, come on, guys, for real? I mean, God is making weird miracle bread food, and you can't even listen to his instructions and trust that he's going to do it again tomorrow? And it's easy for us to see traces of greed in other people, but it's much more difficult for us to pray the prayer that we've been praying throughout this series from Psalm 139 and genuinely giving God access to our whole hearts, our whole lives, and that includes all of our resources, and say, God, I want you to decide what stays and what goes. And God is teaching us the same lesson he was teaching the Israelites, that stuff will never be enough. But God is saying, I am enough. And that's the lesson that he is planting deep in the hearts of his people. And so he gives them another chance at this lesson. In verse 21, After this, the people gathered the food morning by morning, each family according to its need. And as the sun became hot, the flakes that they had not picked up melted and disappeared. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much as usual, four quarts per person instead of two. Then all the leaders of the community came and asked Moses for an explanation. He told them, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow will be a day of complete rest, a holy Sabbath day set apart for the Lord. So bake or boil as much as you want today and set aside what is left for tomorrow. So they put some aside until morning, just as Moses had commanded. And in the morning, the leftover food was wholesome and good without maggots or odor. Moses said, eat this food today, for today is a Sabbath day dedicated to the Lord. There will be no food on the ground today. You may gather the food for six days, but the seventh day is the Sabbath. There will be no food on the ground that day. Here in verse 27, get ready to pull your hair out. But some people went out anyway on the seventh day, but they found no food. The Lord asked Moses, how long will these people refuse to obey my commands and instructions? They must realize that the Sabbath is the Lord's gift to you. That is why he gives you a two-day supply on the sixth day, so there will be enough for two days. On the Sabbath day, you must each stay in your place. Do not go out and pick up food on the seventh day. So the people did not gather any food on the seventh day. And while I'm frustrated with the Israelites when I read that passage, I can't blame them for being skeptical because... I mean, the last time they tried to save some overnight, it was all full of maggots the next day. Not to mention the fact that they were still getting used to the idea that they were collecting weird flecks of stuff off the ground in the morning that could be turned into bread. Bread that was pretty good, apparently, like wafers made with honey. So that sounds good. I'd try some. But the people went out to collect because they had a scarcity mindset. What if we run out? What if someone steals our supply? What if there isn't a new batch on Monday before I put it into a trash bag, right? It doesn't hurt to stock up and save for a rainy day. And God is not trying to teach his people to never plan ahead or to never make wise investments with their money. 
He's trying to teach them to trust him. In verse 29, it says, They must realize that the Sabbath is the Lord's gift to you. That is why he gives you a two-day supply on the sixth day. So there will be enough for two days. The manna is a gift. The Sabbath is a gift. He's trying to shift their hearts to understand that he loves them and he wants to give them good gifts. You want to know how to fight off greed in your heart? We fight greed with generosity. And when we focus on the giver instead of focusing on the gifts, then we will become more like him and he will transform us into givers, givers of good gifts like himself. He wants us to start giving stuff away. We fight greed with generosity. See, if we focus on the giver instead of focusing on the gifts, then over time we will become more like him and we'll become givers ourselves. We'll become generous people. See, if we keep our eyes on the giver instead of on the gifts, then it's not difficult to give him a day of our week where we set it aside for rest and we take a break from earning money so that we always have more. If we keep our eyes on the giver, then it's not difficult to give back 10% to his work through the church and then say, God, please make this 90% plenty to meet our needs and show me where you'd like me to be even more generous, where you'd like me to give away even more. And just as God was teaching the Israelites that the Sabbath was a gift and that the manna was a gift, he does give us wonderful good gifts that sustain us and bring us satisfaction. But generosity is also a gift. It's a healing balm that simultaneously blesses another person and offers us freedom from the sticky tentacles of our stuff, from the scarcity mindset that holds us back and keeps us from seeing just how sufficient God is. Generosity has the power to set us free to fill our lives with gratitude and joy. Generosity has the power to set us free to live filled with gratitude and joy. So our try it today is to practice generosity, to choose to put generosity in the closets of our hearts and do something about it. Laying everything we have, all of our time, our money, our resources out on the table before God and then give him access and say, what do you want me to give away? And then give it away and give generously. And it's important for us to remember as we think about this try it today, because that's a difficult one to do. It's important to remember that God is not up in heaven saying, oh, perfect, she just gave me the opportunity. All right, now I'm going to get to work ruining Jess's life and making her totally miserable. First, I'm going to have her give 10% or more to the local church right off the bat. Oh my goodness, she'll hate that. And then I'm going to totally obliterate every inch of fun in her life and make her only eat rice for the rest of her days because she's giving everything away. God is not on a mission to make us miserable. He wants to give us life. And it looks mysterious at first, but it is the path that leads to everlasting life. And we read a story in Mark chapter 10 
of a man who came to Jesus, and he senses in Jesus that he has something eternal to offer. He knows his experience of life as a man, a man with a lot of wealth and resources, and he sees something in Jesus and asks him, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you know the commandments, and he lists off some of the commandments, and he says, follow those. And, and the man says, teacher, I've kept all those since I was a boy. And verse 21 of Mark 10 says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. And at this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. And the key verse in this passage for me is verse 21, where it says, Jesus looked at the man and loved him. He loved him. He didn't ask him to give generously to the poor because he wanted to make him miserable or he just wanted to test him and hurt him or cause him to struggle. He loved him and he loves us too and he can be fully trusted. And so when he asks you to start tithing, giving 10% or more to the local church, it's because he loves you. And when he asks you to give that little stash of cash you've been saving for a rainy day someday to another family because they're experiencing a rainy day today, it's because he loves you. He loves you. God is the giver of good gifts, and one of the best gifts he wants to give you is to teach you to be a giver. He wants us to live free, free from the trap of greed that wants to steal life from us. He wants us to fight greed with generosity. Thanks so much for being here this week. I want to let you know that next week, as we continue the series, we're going to be covering the topic of lust. And this is an episode that I am really excited about. I'm really passionate about it. And I want to bring it up specifically because I know that for some of us, we read the title lust and we have certain connotations about what that means. Or maybe you read it and you think that isn't really a big struggle of mine or it doesn't really apply to me. I want to challenge you and encourage you, implore you to mark your calendar to plan to listen to next week's episode as we discuss lust, because I believe that lust is a uniquely powerful tool of the enemy to destroy our lives, and I believe it's something that is best fought in community, that lust is one of the things that we need to fight arm in arm with each other and support each other. So whether or not you personally struggle with lust or have struggled with it in the past, I want to challenge you to listen next week so that if nothing else, you can be better equipped to help those around you fight that battle because this is one that we have to fight together in community. So thanks so much for being here this week. We look forward to seeing you back here next week as we continue the Cleaning House series. Have a good day. Mm -hmm.